Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We're back. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. If you want to join this conversation, the number to call is 244 244- one seven seven seven. We're back with Kathy Kathy Partlow of the Family Center of Washington County. She's the Housing and Community Development Manager. Kathy, I had to interrupt you before the break. Uh, we were talking about what you do every day, it, literally, uh, what your work life is like. So continue. So I would say, um, in continuing with what uh, we were talking about, um, we are uh, working with families daily in relationship to whatever their current needs are. That may have nothing immediately to do with housing, uh, although as, as a fallback, it always has to do with housing, uh, but it may be that they need to get their Social Security card uh, because in order to apply for housing, if you are lower income, you need that as some sort of documentation. It may be that they need to get to economic services to try to renew their voucher so that they can stay in the hotel. Um, And it may be that we are able to come in and read a book to a child and just have some good time in terms of relationship building. Um, And it also may be that there is a crisis uh, of some sort or another and we are plugging into something like a a DCF meeting or a meeting in the community with them and another provider that uh, that we can be potentially helpful at and or a community partner in terms of te- leading a team. Okay. And one more time, uh, your emperor for a day, uh, it's pretty clear that we have a housing problem. It's pretty clear that people who are unhoused, are unhoused for a variety of reasons, some of them complex, some of them not so complex. Uh, As a friend of mine said to me once, poverty is complicated. So it's not like one program or one check is going to solve this thing. Uh, It's a multi-pronged monster that you're trying to tame. But go back, emperor for a day, what's the right policy? What should we be doing? I think the, I think a couple of things. The first is we need more housing. We've talked about that, but we need, I want to go back to say one more time, we need all kinds of housing. We need housing that someone might be able to live in for a shorter period of time, whether it's officially temporary or it's just sort of a step up system. We need things like tiny houses, pallet houses, shelters, um, non-congregate shelters where service providers may be able to uh, rent an apartment and have various uh, families or individuals come in and through that apartment in, in terms of moving them forward into permanent housing. So in terms of housing, that's complex as well because right. we're talking about the shelter side of things as well as the permanent housing side of things. And some of those shelter systems really need to be low or no barrier. We are sometimes dealing with folks who have a history of some kind. Maybe they've been evicted before. Uh, Maybe they have recent or somewhere in the past substance use issues or some criminality in in their history. That makes housing them maybe a bit more challenging or, or helping them to become housed a bit more challenging. And so we need those interim steps, places where folks can be to ground themselves a little bit, to 
to think about what they need for their, and want for their future and to move towards that in a really positive way. And the stress and trauma of not knowing what you are able to do on a day-to-day basis or where you're going to lay your head on a day-to-day basis is, um, is debilitating. And so we're adding, in some cases, I guess I'd say insult to injury by not providing all of the possibilities that we might need in order to help this population to move forward. We also need social service, uh, social services in general because that, this is a trauma-based, uh, thing, right? Homelessness creates trauma. Uh, even in the best of circumstances for someone who is homeless. And uh, we need to be able to staff. So this goes to the economic piece of it, right? We need to be able to have our mental health agencies, our social service agencies, our substance use agencies, our housing agencies be able to not only hire but also have a housing situation available for those folks that they do hire. So that's on sort of the other side of things. Uh, Housing problems cross the gambit. You don't have to be homeless to have a housing problem. Uh, But if you have a housing problem and you're not homeless, you could well be on your way to being homeless because there's nowhere for folks to go in the state of Vermont. Well, that is well said, and I think you just laid out the roadmap. And now we're going to move to some other guests who are going to take that a step further. Kathy Partlow from the Family Center of Washington County, as always, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks, Kevin. Okay. Okay. That last piece, uh, it'll be, this show will be turned into a podcast and uh, you'll be able to listen to it again. Uh, I urge everybody to uh, listen to what she just said. I'll give you a personal anecdote about when she talked about Unable to lay your head, it, it's debilitating. For one night in my life, uh, I we were moving from one house to another house, and we had to stay in a White River Junction, Howard Johnson's. And the air conditioner was broken. It was August. And you would have thought that the world was ending. We were so miserable, right? That's one night. And we're talking about people who experience this day in and day out. And to to further talk about that, our next guest is Rebecca Dupree. Rebecca Dupree has been on this show before. She has experienced homelessness. She has lived in her car with her kids. And she's here with us to talk about her experiences. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. There's giggling going on because there's <laughs> other guests here. We may as well introduce uh, Brenda Siegel right now because she's giggling in the background. What Brenda- we're giggling about is the idea that one night of disruption was so hard for you. That's such a privileged point of view. Exactly. Like both of us have had so much disruption in our lives. Right. So just to be clear, what we're giggling about is how how it's even hard to imagine that just one night would be a problem for someone. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So, Rebecca, tell us, um, you have experienced the motel uh, housing program. I have. You have experienced not having a roof over your head. Definitely. And living in your car. Yes, of course. What did that do to you? What's It, it like? What's it like? Yeah. Well, the not having that stabilization, it is very traumatic. Um, 
not knowing what's happening as Kathy was saying, you don't know where you're going to sleep. I mean, you don't even know necessarily where you're going to wake up in the morning in your car because, um, you know, you can be asked to move where you are or you get sick in the middle of the night. You end up in the hospital. Um, there's just never there's never any certainty to even to even that much. Even if you're not in a hotel, you're in your car. You still just don't even know where you're going to be. And take us into the things that the rest of us take for granted. The ability to walk into a grocery store and get food. Uh, the, uh, a cell phone. Uh, you, you, you don't worry about losing your cell phone. So you can call your mother or your... Well, right. well it's you not just that, help. but it's also all the it's little like, things in life. Yes, the cell phone. It's like charging your cell phone. Right. Um, I mean, that's a big thing, you know. So it's not just losing your cell phone. Um, it's, again, also, you know... You lose, you know, people, they steal, they take your things um, if you're outside in your car, whatever. Um, And, um, you know, as far as food, go to a grocery store, but you don't have a place to go home to cook that food on. Right. So you don't have that same, you know, that same advantage. If you're in the hotels, more times than not, you have a microwave, still not the same thing. Right. Uh, How did you get unhoused take us back in your life a it was a a violent situation when i was able to leave that situation i could not afford the rent on my own yeah there was no way that was going to be an option yeah and we and let me ask you this question um we tend to as we talk about this, and we're talking about it more, but I, as I read and talk to more people, we tend to talk about those experiencing homelessness as uh, suffering from substance use disorder and mental health issues, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that exists, obviously, but that's not every person experiencing homelessness. No, it's not, and I'm one of them. Um, so tell mental us about health that. is greatly affected. I think that comes with experiencing homelessness. Yeah. Um, but substance use, no, it doesn't. It doesn't follow along. Yeah. Um, I've dealt with the mental health. Um, you know the trauma that does go along with it. I've never experienced substance use. Um, but I have found that a lot of people um, experiencing homelessness that they do. There's a high percentage. Yeah, but but a large number of people experiencing homelessness are just average Joes and Josephines. Oh yeah, like the rest of us. They're exactly. just just like us. There's, they, no, there's no difference. It's they're just struggling as more. I, as I said earlier, they 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 get a flat tire on their car. Their car breaks down. They can't get to work. They lose their job. And and that and then it starts to spiral. You spiral down, yes. And through no fault of their own, just you know, stuff happens. Exactly. And it can that's, happen to anybody at any point, anytime. And you know people for whom that is the case. Tell us about that. You know, tell us, give us. Can you come up with an example of, you know, how that happened to somebody? I want to try to bring this home for listeners, so it's not all drug addicts out there, everybody. Well, no, a lot of the people that we've worked with, you know, they work full-time jobs. So it's not, um, so it's not that they are just, 
taking advantage of a program. They're not sitting around not helping themselves. That's not what we're seeing. Yeah. It's not the case at all. People are working full time. Some of them are working two jobs. Um, it's just simply that they may have something in their past that's been hard for permanent housing or they just can't find the housing. So whether it's substance use, criminal activity, eviction, um, they're all barriers that gets in the way and landlords don't, they don't want to rent if there's, from my experience alone and what I've seen with other people, if there's like any just little thing out of place, landlords don't want to rent to you. Even just homelessness. That's, yes. Yeah. What, what you drop sh- to the bottom of the list of the pile. As the soon as they you- find out that you're homeless, landlords, it's like, boom, no, you're done. Yeah. What is had what has been your experience in the state's subsidized motel program? Does it work or not work? Is it good or is it not good? And 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 also with state government, with the Economic Services Division of DCF, the ability to I mean, I can just think of you know, you're without housing, your phone battery is dying and you're waiting on hold to talk to a caseworker to try to get into a motel. These are the tiny little things that we take for granted but are huge in the life of someone who's trying to get in, uh, into a motel. Well, What's been exactly. your experience? Well, it's um, – I mean, it is a struggle. But um, the the wait times are awful. But then waiting five-plus hours on the phone being disconnected, stuff like that, is it's very problematic. Um, not getting callbacks. Um, again, people that work full-time – you know, or they have children to attend to, their own medical they're dealing with, whatever. You can't be spending all day trying to renew something like your hotel voucher. With economic services, it does not work that way. You need to be looking for housing, doing what you need to do, and that is definitely a big factor that gets in the way. Can you talk to us about the impact of not having a home on kids in general? Well, the the impact is great because you have children that need to be in school. Um, then my children specifically are special needs children, so that gets a little more complicated. But um, like as far as school is concerned, you know, you have kids that, um, you know, you have to be able to, you know, feed them right. You know, there's hygiene, showering, getting them to school on time. You can't do that if they're sick from being in the car. They're not sleeping properly at night. You can't get them to school on time in the morning because they're just, you know, you don't function, you know, right? When you're not sleeping or eating well or whatever the situation may be. Um, So it greatly impacts them. It's their mental health as well. So, you know, my kids specifically, um, you know, they couldn't do a full day of school due to the homelessness piece, um, because they they couldn't function all day. They were, you know, if it wasn't just for being sick from being outside, um, their mental health was taking a toll. So, you know, the focus was an issue, just being tired. You know, you're in a car. Imagine sleeping in a car night after night, winter time. Um, you know, it's cold. You know, you're waking up to start the car, warm your kids up and everything. Um, but, you know, doing homework in a car, um, you know, all of this you, that you would, you know, expect to do, like, in the privacy of a home at night, getting your kids ready, 
warm for bed, everything, fighting. dinner, brushing your teeth, all of this. Well, yeah, when you have two children, yes. Fighting. Um, fighting is a thing, um, definitely. Um, good thing for third row seating in a car, though, even though still not much. But, you know, I separated them in that way. <laughs> Let me ask you a, what seems like a really dumb question, but how do you sleep in a car? <laughs> do you sleep in the driver's seat and, um, and recline I, the seat? So, yes. So I have... One kid in the front, one kid in the back? I had the front. I had one child in the middle, and then because we do, we're lucky enough to even have a car, which most don't. Right. Um, our car had third row seating, so we separated it that way: front, middle, third row seating. Okay, so tell us what, as specifically as you can. You you were living in a motel in Central Vermont. That's when we met. Yes. Uh, what's happened to you since then? Um. As far as your living situation. Okay. So from, I mean, we were, yes, in central Vermont in the, in the hotels. Um, we did move to southern Vermont when me advocating for other people became an issue, um, for some people there. Um, but throughout that hotel, uh, to another hotel. Yes. To another, yes. Sorry. To another hotel. Um, but continuing to work, um, to help other people experiencing homelessness, but also myself, um, 10 plus applications to apartments, um, while trying to struggle, make sure that my kids had what they need, um, school in place, enrollments, um, all of this, like medical piece, physical and mental health, um, but again, you know, it was, you know, daily, you know, you're on every site you can find online for apartment listings, house, house listings, whatever. At the same time, in my case, I had to struggle to keep my Section A voucher through right. the state as well, because without that, there was no way we were going to be able to exit homelessness. And now you're housed. I am. We are. <laughs> yes. How did you achieve that? Um. Well, I will first say that it was without help from state providers, services. Um, it was on my own, but um, I happened, it was coincidence, but I happened to come across a landlord that, um, well, knew some people that I knew. Right. Um, and that was kind of like my in, honestly, yep. um, there. And... Um, but if it wasn't for that, I still would probably not be housed. Yeah. What's the difference between being housed and not being housed? <laughs> how has your life how has your life changed? Um well that's it's I mean everything has changed. It's even just things like as little like just having a conversation last night with somebody. I have a stove. <laughs> right. Um we have an actual refrigerator. So there's like little things well that well, to most people, sorry, like you, for example, where yeah. that would seem little, like, you know, okay, yeah, so we all have that. Well, we don't all have that. Yeah. Um, but so it's little things like that, but then it's all the way up to like, you know, at night I can be like, you know, my kids like hop in the shower, do homework, brush your teeth, you know, get some rest, go hot, to bed. Hot water. You know, hot water. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, um, just all of that. And then it's like, you know, you're actually getting rest. Um, you're sleeping at night. We're all three of us. You know, we're actually able to sleep at night, get up in the morning, function, you know, do what we have to do. And, I mean, we've only been housed for, it's been a little over a month, just over a month. But there's already been great improvement with our physical health, mental health. I've been able to, you know, 
grow and continue to move forward in helping other people. And while doing that, I'm able to share my experiences with these people. So, um, you know, they're like, you know, like some of them, you know, they express like, wow, so there is a chance that I can come out of this. Yeah. And it's a good feeling for me, but I think it is for them too, because it's like they're, they are realizing that they will find, they, they have this hope again, they will find this permanent housing and stability. What's your experience with state government? And, you know, it, it's, look, it's easy to bang on state government and blame them for everything. These are really hard jobs, um, not resourced well enough. But what's been your experience ma- navigating that system, motels and vouchers, et cetera, et cetera? A very frustrating experience. Um, when you already have so much at risk and not being able to get through these systems like you need to do, um, makes it that much worse. Um, you already have nothing to lose. Okay. So if you can't do what is expected of you, um, you know, working with economic services, you know, if it's renewing your voucher, um, you are, I mean, it's, it's really, it's complex, but when you don't already have anything, and all you have is a hotel room and you can't follow the process, but it's not of your fault. It's just because of whatever system failure, yeah. you know, is in place. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I mean, you suffer the consequences of something that's just not your fault overall. Yeah. I don't know how else to explain it than that. Um, but it's, you know, what's happening is not the fault of the people that are in the program or even the ones that are outside, it's not their fault at all. They just simply, you know, it's system failure. And it's just the wrong people that are paying the price for it. And that was myself, and that's other people that I work with and speak with as well that are experiencing homelessness. Okay, now we're going to switch gears. And you're live in studio, so you're not going anywhere. So stick around. (laughs) And we're bringing Brenda Siegel into the conversation. She's a policy expert around poverty, drug policy, and housing issues. She ran for governor as the Democratic nominee, and she has a hotline and deals directly with folks experiencing homelessness in the motels. Uh, I call it direct service. But um, Brenda, what is going on here, and how do we make it better? So in, especially in the last six months, so we've been doing this hotline for three years now. It started with myself, Addie Lensner, who was at that time 17, and Josh Lizenby, who was at that time chronically homeless. And, uh, especially as, uh, we, um, in the last six months, the chaos around the continuous changing of the program and continuously throwing up more walls and barriers. We heard Lola Dufort talk about that earlier. Um, that that makes it so that people um, they're become dysregulated by the experience of the systems and state government. Like we see with any marginalized group, we are definitely discriminating against people in poverty, and we're sometimes utilizing this program to do so, even if we're keeping folks sheltered. We're kind of saying, yes, but in order to do that, you have to prove that you aren't lying, you have to prove that you're homeless, you have to 
prove your income every single week and go through the renewal process every single week so you're being penalized now for working, which is kind of unbelievable. And then after, uh, and then after you get to a place where maybe you're not in this April cohort anymore, maybe so you are now subject to pre-pandemic guidelines, and the pre-pandemic guidelines say that even if you're a kid, you only get 28 days inside a program. Even if you're a pregnant person, you only get 28 days inside a program. If you're 87 years old and don't know what's going on, you still get only eight, 28 days inside the program. And there's a lot of things that don't count for the other eight, 56 days you can get, so 84 total. So we're putting people on the street we aren't. The state is putting people on the street regularly, and we're fighting really hard to try to keep them in and find where they do qualify for the longer period of time. How many people are we putting on the street, do you think? Well, as we know, people are being exited from the April cohort, that uh, that grandfathered in uh, clause that happened in the veto session uh, to keep people in through April. People are being exited at pretty rapid speeds right now. Okay, just to be clear, this was the legislature deciding in its recent legislative session that this program, this motel program, could not go on forever and people needed to uh, figure out other other places to go live. Well, in the um, kind of... I think thinking that that is flawed because it because it is because uh, it's still not understanding the narrative that there's just no housing for people to go into. Uh, they the idea was that the state would help people find appropriate housing for them, but there's a lot of regulations they put into that uh, conditional factors to staying in the program that have made it hard for state government actually to implement this program. I feel, I often feel for the workers having to do this. Um, it has made it hard for the providers on the ground. It is extremely hard and demoralizing for people like us doing this work on the ground and especially challenging for the people experiencing homelessness. So this has, because none of us were in the room, the workers weren't in the room, the people experiencing homelessness weren't in the room. None of us were in the room when they imagined this new system. Um, instead of it being uh, more uh, empowering, which I think, and creating more autonomy in the program, what it actually did was put up more barriers, create more hurdles, and um, is, is, is pretty harming. So, yes, people are sheltered. But it is creating a big problem. We have to ask, why, why do you think that is the case? Why do you think, where did this impulse come from in American society that we have to put up barriers? And I think it's a, it's a legacy. I, I, well, I actually don't know, but you know, food stamps, you got to prove that you're looking for work or, or unemployment. You got to prove you're looking for a job. There's this, there's this assumption that people are trying to cheat the system. Well, as many folks know, I've been in poverty for a long time, and the experience of being in poverty is when you walk into the economic services office, it's almost like the, the idea, not at the fault of the worker, this is what they're being trained to do, the idea when you walk in is that you're already lying or you need to be figure out why you actually don't qualify for the service that you do qualify for, and here you are experiencing, in my case when my son was a baby, experiencing for the first time in my life, poverty, and really a lot of shame around it because in our communities, in our towns, they're small, so people know. And the reality is that 
um, that is a barrier then to you asking for or receiving support because if you automatically you start to put up your own walls if every time you walk into a, an agency that's supposed to help you they are doubting the, your personal experience and so why I think that is is because we look at people in poverty as if they did something wrong and the data shows us very clearly that uh, it is this is. Poverty is an experience of the conditions often around you, sometimes generational poverty, sometimes the economy, um, and also a lot of other factors that are happening in our communities right now. Okay. We're going to take a phone call before we have to take a break. Kate in Marshfield, you are on the line with Brenda Siegel and Rebecca Dupree. Hi. Um, I, I've been down this path many, many years ago. I'm now, thank God, comfortably housed. Although, interestingly, I am comfortably housed in a house that I could not rent. Um, it was a foreclosure. It was really cheap because it had all kinds of problems. And um, I was willing to tackle those, and there's no problem. I now have a house. It still has quite a few serious problems, but it's, it's home. It has all of those things that we were talking about, which I didn't have when I was uh, going through a really rough period when I was a single mother and all of that and did live in my car for a while and all of that kind of thing. One of the things that, that is, I think, neglected is the landlord's side of things. You know, I couldn't rent this house out to anybody because it could not pass the rental housing standards. So in order to rent this house out, I would have to sink a lot of money into it that I don't have. Um, even though it's perfectly livable house, but you know it has issues, and we've sort of priced. In order to do that, I would have to sink so much money into the house that I would have to be charging, you know, the market rate, which I looked at, and they're horrifying. And I don't think too many people making, you know, the close to minimum wage jobs or even the twenty dollar an hour type jobs that are, you know, plentifully available could swing. Kate, uh, and I had that experience. I was lucky enough when I was living in my car for a while that I landed a house rented out by an old lady who really didn't even understand such things. Now we are, this in perspective, going back 40 years, and people didn't pay much attention to things like housing standards. And this house had uh, it had running water, cold. It had uh, electricity. And that was pretty much it. It did have a little electric heater, but only in one room. It was a godsend. It was a real place. It was an address. It was a place where my son could do his homework, where we had pets, where we had a place to cook. Right. Um, we couldn't do that anymore. Right. Nobody would let you do that here. Kate, thank you very much for your call. Uh, we're All the heads in the studio are nodding along with you. So, uh, Brenda. It's pretty clear, and I think if Chris Winters, uh, the commissioner of Department of Children and Families, who's one of the more uh, public-spirited and dedicated public servants that I've ever known, and I think Me as uh, well. you're all nodding, um, it is an impossible job. How do we make it better? How do we make this system work better? If you're the chair of the Appropriations Committee or the governor or you, what should we all be doing to make this work better? 
Well, we need to start with the concept of housing first and shelter first, which means that we that services are available but not required because we know from the data that when services are available, people are more likely to engage in them and engage in them in meaningful ways that work for them. Um, when they're required, people tend to feel uh, – attacked and, and, and are more resistant. It, it, isn't, it, it actually is not an effective method, and we know from the data that being housed is a huge part of the portion. So we don't want that to be conditional. So would you do me a favor? Say that again because that took me – that issue took me about six months to understand. So what you're saying is housing first, then services, uh, mental health counseling, uh, uh, job training, whatever – uh, here's a, uh, find a charger for your cell phone, whatever. Um, those should not be required as a condition of you living there. And if you, if you have a drink or whatever, violate some rule, you, you don't get kicked out. You don't get unhoused. Do you think yeah. there's, I, I know of a story of a young man who, um, was housed in Pathways Housing, because Pathways does use housing first, uh, had a recurrence, um, so they relapsed. And uh, they, it took them three weeks to get back into recovery. Um, and they say very clearly that if they had been unhoused in that period of time, they probably wouldn't have been able to get re-enter recovery. And that's really clear because we know that the data shows that it's almost impossible to maintain recovery when you're on the street. But also, there's a lot of people, like most of the people for whom we work for, who you put them in housing, and that's what they need. They don't need mental health counseling any more than any one of us that is already housed already does. Yeah, that's ain't that the truth. Yeah. Every, there's a lot of people who need support. <laughs> mental illness is actually pretty rampant in our culture. And um, and to believe that people are unhoused then absolutely need those services. Sometimes you put someone in housing and right away they are, they are able to maintain other areas of their life that were falling apart because they were unhoused. I think people really don't understand how disruptive it is to sleep outside, how disruptive it is to live with all your children in one room in a hotel. Those things are very disruptive, uh, and yet – we have to keep people sheltered in non-congregate shelter space. We do not need to put everyone together and expect them to maintain uh, stability in that setting. And we definitely, certainly do not, uh, shouldn't be leaving people outside, people who are are very, very disabled. By setting. non-congregate, you mean not a dormitory at, at some college. You What you mean is they get their own space. Well, if it was a dormitory at a college, then you would want people to have their own individual rooms. Yeah. That's what non-congregate means. Okay. So it still could not, be not that the gym floor at the Barry Auditorium. Right. Def certainly not 300 people at the Barry Auditorium. Okay. As was proposed, that that would be a disaster waiting to happen because think why about, talk about that. Well, think about do any of us want to live amongst 300 other people on a cot no. where they, you don't have private space, where you don't get to decide when to turn the light off or on, where if you are panicking because of your situation, you can't go off and have your own private space. We That that just doesn't work, and we know that non-congregate shelter space does work. That's what the evidence tells us now. And so we have to follow the evidence and the data to move forward. And as we heard earlier today, there that should be included in shelter and there needs to be no barrier options. So people who do struggle with active substance use disorder or other types of high barriers, still it is better for our communities and is better for those individuals if those folks are housed. Why aren't we buying five motels 
throughout, up and down Vermont, uh, renovating them and housing people in those motels. Well, I What's t- the barrier to that? That is what we fought for uh, in this last legislative session and will continue to uh, because when we purchased in Oregon, they did a model where they purchased the hotels, they used them for shelter, for non-congregate shelter, and then they slowly renovated them. We could use the pallet housing utilizing the facilities at a hotel uh, to uh, house people or shelter people while we are renovating and therefore have no period of unsheltering the people who are currently housed in the hotel program. That would be one option we could use. And while it does take a significant initial investment, it in the long term addresses a huge part of our housing crisis. And it's less expensive. I mean, we're spending the money now. Right. So we're spending the money now anyways. We've spent a significant amount of money over time anyways. And if we think about what there is to do moving forward, we have to come up with a program that actually both keeps people sheltered and builds more housing. It's not either or. The con- the situation this last session was, well, in order to build more housing, we need to put our money there and these people will have to be unsheltered in order to make that happen. We can't do that. That isn't humane. We have people in wheelchairs. We have people who have ha, um, are having congenitive heart failure. Right. We have people who are in labor and were supposed to be exited yesterday and luckily got an exception. What's the hotline number if they want to call you? The hotline number is 802-489-6534. And if you go to endhomelessnessvt.org, then you can see what we can do to help you and what we can't. Thank you both for joining us. That's our show. Our thanks to our guests. I can't remember them all because there were a lot of them. Lola Dufort, uh, Kathy from the uh, Family Center of Washington County, Rebecca, Brenda. Mike Pichak. And Mike Pichak, the treasurer. Thank you very much. The show becomes a podcast at WDEVradio.com, so you can get the whole thing uh, in about a couple of hours once it's edited. And uh, No, not a couple of hours. Soon. <laughs> soon. Uh, and, of course, you can listen live to the show wherever you are. I'm here Wednesdays and Fridays. You can find me at KevinKLS.com. Subscribe to my weekly newsletter or my own podcast. We'll be back next Wednesday. Uh, we're talking about all sorts of other things, uh, political We look forward to to hearing from you with your calls. Send me your questions that you want answered. Um, Our guests will span the spectrum as always. Our show is produced by me, engineered and made possible by Danny McGivergan and all the folks, including Lee Cattell today, uh, at WDEV, the friendly pioneer. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll see you right back here Wednesday on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on WDEV.